It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Dr. Zeke Emanuel was an architect of the Affordable Care Act, which turned 10 years old last month. With the COVID-19 pandemic, people are losing their jobs, and with that, their health insurance. You know, if I think about the coronavirus situation, one of the things that is quite clear is that it's filled with uncertainty. And one of the many uncertainties is, you know, how do I maintain coverage? The Trump administration has fought to get rid of the ACA, but with 22 million people unemployed in the U.S., is the law needed now more than ever? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Ideas Now, a digital content initiative at the Institute. People who never thought they'd be unemployed are out of work and standing in breadlines thanks to the coronavirus. Bioethicist and oncologist Zeke Emanuel says in this new reality, people want security. One aspect of a secure future is health insurance, especially in a pandemic. It, it seems to me totally untenable to maintain that we're not going to provide a guarantee insurance for everyone in the country um, and still need people to go into the hospital to get COVID tested and all the other stuff. Today, he speaks with Perry Peltz, a journalist, documentary filmmaker, and public health advocate. We caught up with them in their home offices to discuss universal coverage, the November election, and what needs to happen for the country to reopen. Here's Peltz. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, welcome. Such a pleasure to be able to, to talk with you. Great to be here. So let's go back. In March, you outlined a plan for containment, which would lead to a soft restart of the economy in June. Here we are, mid-April. Are we on track for June? And what does, in your opinion, what does recovery look like? Uh, well, first of all, um, to get on track for recovery, we really have to focus on testing. There's a certain infrastructure that's going to be necessary for getting people back to work. That infrastructure begins with testing, contact tracing, um, and uh, protecting people. Uh, uh, going the extra mile for the most vulnerable people, whether it's the elderly or people with uh, serious comorbidities, mainly around vascular disease. So people with diabetes, with heart disease, um, and uh, asthma and emphysema, obesity, those are at the top of the list. Um, and those three things need to be in place. Uh, you know, over the last few days, um, there's been a the administration tried to convince everyone there was more, they'd been doing more than enough testing uh, where we tested just barely over 1% of the population. That clearly convinced no one. So more recently, they're arguing they're gonna invoke the De Defense Production Act to get uh, various shortages solved. Um, that may help. Uh, I think they're probably hearing from a lot of uh, businesses uh, that if they're gonna restart, they're gonna have to test people and testing is not available, you know, no one was convinced that they were testing enough people. So I think that's where we're at. Um, and we simply have to test more people if we want to be able to reopen. What does reopening look like? Well, I will say that the president's plan at least had this element right in structure, which is you need metrics on which you're going to reopen. You need to have an infrastructure uh, when you reopen and you're going to reopen in phases, not all at once. 
And those phases are going to vary by the kind of business you're running and the kind of distancing you can have. So I think those four elements were right in the plan. Uh, I think they got some of the details totally wrong, uh, but I think that's correct. We're going to start phasing in and opening up where the risks are the least, distancing can be maintained the best, um, as well as many of the other things. You can wash your hands, you can have face masks, et cetera. And then at the very end, we're going to uh, open up uh, where the very end is probably, you know, uh, 18 months from now, we're going to be able to open up larger meetings where distancing isn't so easy, et cetera. And that assumes that we have a vaccine in pl uh, available. 18 months, that's a really long time from now. That's, you know, that's a year and a half away. What does it look like between now and then? Are schools going to reopen? Are we going to be able to, people going to go to restaurants? What does life look like? Yeah, so I think um, in phase one, as I've advocated, I think uh, schools are probably a really good place to reopen, uh, separating out desks. Um, the the, the uh, Danish are trying this right now, so we're, we're going to have the advantage of looking. They're separating out desks. Kids come to class and they come to school in staggered time so that you don't have a big crush and rush. Um, you separate desks by six feet. You have kids wash immediately when they get in. You have them wash every hour. You clean door handles and other items where kids are uh, likely to be touching uh, them a lot. Uh, you have kids playing in, uh, during breaks in small groups only. Um, and uh, you recognize that this has to be voluntary. Uh, there are some parents in Denmark, understandably so, worried that their kids might get COVID-19, come home uh, and put the parents at risk. Uh, and so you have to have this initially on a voluntary basis. Um, same thing with teachers. You initially have to have it on a voluntary basis because the teachers might be putting themselves at risk. Um, and they are beginning in Denmark with the youngest kids. I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with that, but uh, it uh, seems like a very smart thing to do. I would actually uh, think that uh, you can begin anything up to about 21, 22. If you look at the data, there's, I won't say no deaths, but the, almost no deaths under that group and, and a very limited number of cases under that group. So that most of those kids seem to be either asymptomatic or not getting it. Um, and, and that's probably a group I would begin with. Um, and uh, I think uh, that would probably be first. Restaurants where you can keep people uh, tables more than six feet apart. Uh, waiters can wear, uh, wait, uh, wait staff can wear masks and gloves. Um, I think that's uh, a way to go. Whether, you know, that turns out to be viable for restaurants to have half the number of customers or something, I think that's a pretty big challenge. Um, you know, and I think then we'll begin opening up to businesses where meetings are uh, sort of important uh, as long as you are able to physically distance, reduce um, congestion, uh, test people before, uh, and probably on a periodic basis. Um, so that's how I see it. And the very end, as I mentioned, are going to be those venues where it's very hard to get physical distancing, sporting events, um, conferences, uh, concerts. Um, you can't really do them. Uh, it's hard to have a sporting event. You know, there's going to be a rush at the entrance. There's going to be uh, people wanting to go to concession stands, even if you space people out, 
there's going to be high fives, there are cheers. Um, all of that stuff makes, I think, sporting events with fans very unlikely. Sporting events without fans, I think, is a much more viable uh, option. So you mentioned that testing is pivotal. And yet it seems, as in spite of all the talk about testing, that we don't have enough testing. Do you anticipate that's changing in the immediate future? And what do we do without that, without adequate testing? Um, three really good questions. Question number one, uh, you know, we've just had so many mistakes about testing. And every time everyone says, we got testing under control, we clearly don't have testing under control. So uh, going out on a limb where I don't control it and saying, oh, we're going to have testing, it's going to be here in six weeks where everyone we want to have tested is going to get it. I wouldn't say that. I think it's irresponsible to say it. Um, and I would say that the administration ought to stop talking about we got testing under control and prove that they have testing under control um, rather than say it because their word on this issue is not good. Uh, as many of the listeners will know that, you know, the FDA reported pretty decisively that the CDC um, screwed it up is probably a gentle word multiple times on their way to getting uh, test kits out there um, and you know, not believable um, that uh, everything's under control. Could we get enough testing in the next six to 10 weeks? I think that's probably true, um, but you know, it depends upon execution. And so far execution has been abysmal. Um, I think there's no way to sugarcoat it. Uh, and uh, uh, the administration tried to sugarcoat it uh, last week, didn't work. Um, so I think just fess up. It didn't work. Do we need testing? The answer is yes. And how much testing? Well, the minimum projections, which I think are wrong, are 500,000 tests per day. Uh, my own uh, sort of minimum is about 2 million tests per day. The 500,000 want to focus on people with symptoms and people with mo moderate symptoms. Um, that is, I think, the wrong approach. So if you want to open up, what you have to do is control spread. And if you control, think about controlling spread, who, who tests under those conditions, um, your paradigm changes from testing people who are symptomatic to testing two main groups, but there are four real groups, the two main groups. Group number one is everyone who meets a lot of, and intersects with a lot of other people um, and could spread it to many people. So that's frontline healthcare workers, grocery workers, policemen, and other first responders. Those are the people that need to be tested on a regular basis. Um, that would be once a week at least. Um, there are about 7 million of those people on a conservative estimate. So that's 7 million tests you need a week, which is a million tests a day. And beyond that, the second major group, although not only group, the second major group are uh, asymptomatic spreaders. So the people who can really do wreck havoc on a system where you're trying to contain and control the uh, COVID virus are people who unwittingly have the virus and go about as if they didn't have the virus. Those are asymptomatic people who don't have any symptoms and could spread the disease. Um, by the way, we've seen that in other, uh, uh, not pandemics, but other infectious spreads. Uh, Typhoid Mary is a famous person who, uh, a woman who worked in kitchens, didn't know that she had typhoid and spread it to many, many people in New York. 
So I think the same thing is true here. You've got to test asymptomatic people. You know, I, I allocate an extra million a, a day for that, which I think is, a, is kind of the right number if you think that somewhere between 25% and maybe as high as 60% of people who get COVID-19 infection are asymptomatic. That 60% number comes from the USS Teddy Roosevelt, where 60% of the sailors who, got, who were COVID positive had no symptoms at all. Zeke, you talk about testing being critical. Contact tracing is obviously an important part of that, but comes with lots of challenges, most notably privacy. How are you thinking about contact tracing and explain how you imagine it to be? So look, contact tracing in the old days was a sort of gumshoe operation, uh, someone going out and finding all the people you connected with. We have to use technology today. First of all, the virus is spreading so fast. And second of all, we have the technology. You know, uh, Facebook clearly knows when you leave your house, who you interact with, and we need to use that technology. We can't trust Facebook, point blank. So we have to be able to give that data to some independent organization uh, and under two very, very important conditions. Important condition number one, never going to commercialize the data, not going to share it with anyone else. And Important condition number two, the data gets destroyed, non-merged. We're not talking about we keep a shadow part of it. Destroyed every 45 days, the, the data from uh, gets destroyed from the previous, that's 45 days old, um, because it's no longer relevant and you need to, to junk it. Um, I think that's gonna be essential. Are we giving up privacy? Well, if we give it to a trusted organization, that isn't commercializing it, that isn't merging it with other personal information, and that destroys the data, I don't think in any long-term basis we're giving anything valuable up. Um, is it a risk that uh, some players might not play ball, Facebook might not play ball? We already give them a lot of data that we don't realize and a lot of power over our data. And they need to be better players uh, in this game. And I don't think big tech has stepped up in the way it should to help fight this. Uh, now, maybe they're just worried but I think uh, if they're worried, that just attests to how little, how untrustworthy we think they are. Um, so I think, you know, contact tracing needs to be done and it needs to be done in a high tech way. So let's go from, if we think about testing as sugarcoating, let's just move to confusion. And that is a certainty we know is that millions of Americans have lost their jobs. And with yep. that, they lose their, their health insurance. The Affordable Care Act, which you designed, would have allowed those people to get that coverage. Here's the confusion. The administration is trying to get rid of the ACA, and yet it's telling people they can still sign up for insurance. Can you help us make sense of all of this? No. It's a contradiction. Okay, so next question. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms. Look, I think one of the things that's going to clearly, you know, if I think about uh, the coronavirus situation, one of the things that is quite clear is that um, it's filled with uncertainty. And one of the many uncertainties is, you know, how do I maintain coverage? Twenty-two million people have lost their jobs. They're going to lose their health insurance pretty damn soon, and uh, you know, they're not going to be happy about that. They could either buy into the exchange if their income is high enough, or they could get Medicaid uh, if their income is low enough, except, of course, in those uh, 14 states that have decided they're not expanding Medicaid. Um, it's a, it, it seems to me totally untenable to maintain that 
we're not going to provide it, guarantee insurance for everyone in the country um, and still need people to go into the hospital to get COVID tested and all the other stuff if it's necessary, or if God forbid they get sick from COVID, uh, uh, not to go into the hospital because they can't afford it. Um, we need those people to take care of themselves so that they don't spread it around. Um, so I think one of the things you're going to see coming out of um, this situation is uh, some renewed effort to get universal coverage. And I think, you know, not just universal coverage. One of the things we're also seeing is, you know, a lot of people are unemployed who never thought they'd be unemployed are having to be in bread lines who never thought they would have to get free food. We're going to have to bolster the food stamp system. Another thing we obviously have to bolster is the whole system related to unemployment. We've got this artificial, you're on unemployment for a certain amount of time. Why are we, you know, business cycles don't respect 13 weeks, 26 weeks, whatever the period of time is, right? We should have unemployment to the change in the business cycle. I think you're going to see a lot of changes uh, to shore up the safety net because people want security. So here we are. It's the 10th year anniversary, correct, of the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, it was just almost precisely a month ago. Well, here we are at an incredible moment um, at the 10th year anniversary. And I'm curious, how it, what's your thinking right now about the Affordable Care Act and universal health care coverage? You just mentioned universal coverage. What's, where, where's your mind at on that? Uh, we clearly, you know, the ACA made a good dent, got 22 million or so people coverage. Uh, we made a good dent, I think, on cost control. Um, but it was, you know, it didn't fix the system. Um, if anything, I do think one of the things we can be criticized for is that we made it a little more complex, adding into an already complex system, the exchanges. Um, I'm all for that because America, we seem to make things complex to get everyone in by, you know, a patchwork system. I think one of the things you're hearing we heard from people immediately before uh, this coronavirus crisis are two things. One, system's too damn complex. We need help navigating it, simplify it for us. And two, more importantly is, you know what? It's too expensive. Unaffor it's unaffordable. Affordability became the watchword and getting costs under control, vital. Um, I don't think we can forget that as we proceed to uh, try to shore up the system to bail out hospitals and doctors. Um, we do have to think about, well, if we're bailing them out now, how are we going to be sure that the system doesn't simply go back to explosive cost growth? Right, well, which is such a great point, because as you speak about the rise of telemedicine, telemedicine, something that we as Americans have largely resisted, and now we see it works. It seems as though it's an argument that there's something to be gained at this particular moment in, in time as we go through this pandemic. Tell us a little bit about how, how you're thinking about that this actually can be a moment to fix. So I would say, as I mentioned, I think three of the sort of delivery system changes that have been good are more telemedicine, uh, uh, less elective procedures, and a higher threshold for hospitalization. So I think we need to expand telemedicine. Probably the most important thing we can do going forward is we know that a lot of doctors are hurting now, especially independent doctors who are not affiliated with hospitals and health systems. 
Um, and those are important. Uh, they deliver care uh, that's lower cost uh, in the system. We need them and we need to help them. It's a perfect opportunity for us to switch payment to those doctors off of fee-for-service and to uh, alternative payment models where they're sensitive to the quality of care they give and sensitive to the total cost of care uh, that they're ordering. And I think that is very important uh, change going forward. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's one I'm working on to try to facilitate. Um, and I think it could be a perfect opportunity for many uh, um, uh, payers to help doctors transition to a capitated environment. And I think doctors would be receptive in a capitated environment. They would get paid and if they handled most of their patients' care by telemedicine, they'd be paid the same. So if we don't implement these policies that you're speaking of to maintain these changes, how will America's healthcare system be actually worse than it was before? Because prices will go up again. They'll just keep going up because we will have done nothing to, um, we'll just have spent hundreds of billions of dollars shoring up hospitals and other parts of the healthcare system and we'll have done nothing to make them change for that kind of money. And I think that's a mistake. Let's back up a little bit if we can. As we think about recovery, the assumption is that for those of us who have been lucky enough to shelter at home, work from home, we understand that we are, as we start to return to a world, we're taking on a certain amount of risk. How do you think about risk at this particular moment, assuming that let's say at the best case scenario, a vaccine is 18 months down, down the road. That sounds even optimistic at its face. How are you thinking about um, this plan to end this crisis? I, I think that's a great question, which, and, and at its heart, we all have to recognize life has risks. There's nothing we do in life that doesn't have risks. You know, I remind, I used to get calls when there were infections in China or Hong Kong or issues you know, um, in part because I'm the vice provost for global initiatives and we send students overseas. So people think, you know, he's got some understanding of what the risks are in various countries because he's sending students there. And they would say, should I go? And I would say, how are you getting to the airport? Oh, I'm driving to the airport. What are you t asking? And I said, okay, that's the riskiest thing you're doing. You know, um, I used to go to, you know, India and Israel and the riskiest thing I did is get in the car once I landed. Um, and so, we have to recognize every part of life has risks. Driving, I'm a big bicyclist, Bicycle, bicycling has risks, um, swimming has risks. And so we need to understand that we are gonna have to accept some risks related to COVID. And the real question for us is, how do we minimize those risks? We're not gonna get rid of them until we get a vaccine. And even then a vaccine may not be 100% effective. How are we gonna minimize them and what do we need to do? How much risk are we willing to take on in exchange for reopening the economy? You know, and I think as a society, we haven't wrestled with that yet. And we haven't wrestled with, you know, the fact that the risks are not evenly distributed in society. Let's face it, people over 70 have a lot higher risk. People with comorbidities have a lot higher risk. So we're going to have to have this conversation. And I don't know that we've done I know that we haven't done actually better to say it that way. We have not done the analysis of, okay, if we increase people's risks this amount, here's what the economic benefit will be. Here's what the health, how, how much more uh, people 
uh, unfortunately dying from COVID were likely to get? And does that seem like the right trade-off? And that we, we, that's a conversation we're really going to have to begin to have and not just stumble our way into it. And I don't think, you know, it's not like the United States is unique. I don't think any country's had that conversation because no one has produced the, that kind of trade-off understanding. And I think we, we have to have that. So let's talk about a vaccine for a moment, because again, it seems to be one of these areas where there's a lot of confusion. Sometimes you hear that we have never moved as quickly as we have to a vac- for a vaccine. Same question for therapeutic interventions. And yet another group that says the fastest we've ever produced a vaccine was four years. So what do you think is realistic? Because you're right, this sort of comes to a, makes a big change when we have a vaccine, right? That, then you really start to see something that looks like recovery. No, it, 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 it's really, it's to back start? to normalcy if we have a, a, an effective vaccine. Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> I unfortunately, I'll be just blunt. I, I vacillate between optimistic and pessimistic, and I really? can't tell you what swings me. Um, but <laughs> so I, on the uh, optimistic side is we've got many, many super smart people working on it. We've got many more platforms to try RNA uh, vaccines, DNA vaccines, uh, um, cold virus with RNA placed in them. Uh, whole uh, inactivated virus vaccines, live attenuated virus vaccines. Um, and we've got a lot of big, a lot of experienced companies and a lot of uh, ingenious startups all working. So that's the optimistic. Um, and I think we're also recognizing we can probably get into human, not probably, we're already in human testing, but we can get into human testing fast. We can assess the safety relatively quickly and then quickly move to a phase three test, which assesses the effectiveness of these vaccines. And let me say, it is not as if these kind of vaccines don't have serious risks. They do have serious risks, especially the risk of what's called antibody-dependent enhancement of the virus, where you give a vaccine and it actually makes the disease worse. It brings more virus into, say, the lungs and activating the immune system for more damage. Um, So there are some serious risks and we have to assess for them. Nonetheless, having said that, we're not likely to get into um, phase three testing. First of all, phase one, testing really for safety. Moderna started it already, but seriously, it's like late summer, early fall. Um, And we're gonna have to test 2000 people looking for both safety, but also are they producing antibodies to the virus? Then we have to test, are those antibodies effective? Which means, do they actually prevent people from getting the uh, infection? Um, and that's going to be a bigger trial. Uh, probably uh, I, Johnson & Johnson has been talking about 12,000 to 20,000 people. So those are, you know, pretty substantial size trials and you have to, you know, make a pretty good assessment. Um, that means we're unlikely to get a vaccine out there before, you know, Q2, 3, 2021. Um, and that also means taking a risk of if you can get to the phase three test for effectiveness, beginning to produce the vaccine, even though you don't know it's actually going to be effective. So I think that's the optimal scenario. And I should say a lot of these new platforms, the DNA, RNA platform, we've never produced a vaccine against viruses successfully from them. Doesn't mean this isn't the case, but it does mean hold your, curb your enthusiasm, I think someone told me. Um, (laughs) Let's be a little prudent before we bet the farm that it's going to happen. Um, So I, that, that's, 
that that's my thinking about uh, this. Any now, the reason to be pessimistic is, is what you said. The fastest we ever got a vaccine is four years. Um, even if we cut that in half, it's still two years. That's 24 months, not 18. Every month is more people dying. I mean, you know, there's a reason to, to be cautious and not, not assume, assume that everything's going to be hunky-dory even in 18 months. So. And, and are, you, are you any more uh, bullish when it comes to therapeutic interventions? No. Uh, if anything, a little less bullish. Really? Um, yeah, because so all the therapeutics we're trying today, the remdesivir, the um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, all of them are things we've taken off the shelf that we're trying, uh, that were developed for other diseases that we're trying to use in the context of COVID. Now, that works sometimes. We have had, uh, say, thalidomide developed for one condition. It really works in cancer. We had Viagra, which we were developing. Pfizer was developing for blood pressure. It works in erectile dysfunction. Yeah, but that worked not, well for them. It did well. But it's not the usual where you try to develop a drug for X and it really is effective in Y. That doesn't, typically doesn't happen. So that's the first point. So what we're really going to need is drugs developed for coronavirus to work in coronavirus. The second thing is that in a lot of situations, like HIV, like hepatitis C, like uh, uh, cancer, where I practice, um, you need multiple drug regimens. A single drug tends not to be in good enough at, because the viruses or cancer cells tend to become resistant to them. So then you say, well, for an effective treatment, we're gonna need multiple drugs against coronavirus. How, we get, how long is it going to be to test multiple drugs? And that's why I become even more pessimistic about getting an effective treatment for coronavirus. Yes, we might find one drug and it might be moderately successful or effective, but I don't think it'll be the idea of a magic bullet, I think, is, is wrong. Let's go. Let's talk about healthcare politics for a moment, if we can. Uh, we are obviously in an, in an election year. You have said that Medicare for all obviously seems to be attractive because of the security that people are looking for. I didn't say Medicare for all. You didn't hear me use that phrase. I said providing coverage for everyone. There are a okay. variety of ways you can do it. Medicare for all is not the only way. Okay. So how do you think this all impacts the, the presidential election? Um, well, I think what we've seen is that people are having faith in government once again. <laughs> they really want the government to do something and they recognize having a competent government's good. Um, I think if, this, if, if we're in roughly the same state we are today in November and there's not too much um, voter suppression and other shenanigans, um, I think the Democrats are going to win. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, I don't think the administration has shown itself very competent in battling this crisis. And I think, um, you know, 22 million people unemployed within a month tells you a lot. And I think as much as you want to sugarcoat it, as much as uh, uh, people want to blame uh, uh, other countries, other groups, Obama, people recognize we were warned in January. We didn't take it seriously. Um, we didn't prepare. Uh, there were multiple attempts to play it down. And I think that doesn't bespeak competence to people. 
Um, and I think if, if you think this election is about suburban women, you know, a sort of broad categorization of people um, who are the swing here, you know, what do they care about the most? Protecting their children. Have their children, in terms of schools, in terms of health, um, in terms of livelihood, in terms of food security, have they been protected? I think they're really upset. They're home. Maybe they're learning online, but probably not as effectively as if they were in the classroom. And I think that's just not a good place. And if we can't start school in fall, and I'm skeptical that, that we're going to be rushing there, um, I, I, I don't know. I just don't see how this plays well. So, and typically, you know, the party of government are the Democrats, not Republicans. Right. Well, and, and, and before the pandemic, before the novel coronavirus came to the United States, we all already knew about racial-wide disparities when it comes to, to health care. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Absolutely not new. Breast cancer, prostate cancer, you name it. Both Every aspect of health care. Exactly. And it seems especially bad right now uh, with COVID-19. The African-American community seems incredibly vulnerable right now. Um, talk to us a little bit about that and how can you even begin to wrap your head around a way that we can fix this incredible inequity that exists in this country? So there are um, three things I think to focus. First of all, there are some health conditions that seem much more prevalent in the African-American community, not seem, are more prevalent in the African-American community that are comorbidities that predispose you to a very you know, get, getting COVID-19 seriously, right? Diabetes, higher in the African-American, obesity, hypertension. These are conditions that we know are associated with bad outcomes from COVID-19, more prevalent in the African-American community. Second, we know that there are disparities in access to high quality care, that the facilities are not there. We have to do a better job. How, how we do a better job, you know, I've made various proposals around getting doctors to serve these people, uh, these communities more. How do we do that? Well, you can sort of have uh, education that's subsidized if people go work in low, uh, in areas that don't have a lot of physicians or nurses, inner cities, rural areas. I think paying for people to go to uh, medical school and forgive their loans if they go and serve in these underserved areas and in underserved uh, um, activities like primary care, like psychiatry, like pediatric specialties. Um, I think that'll help bring a lot of talent to the community. And the last thing I think we need to recognize is public health is critical here. Um, you know, uh, it, this isn't all about healthcare, it's about eating right, exercising, not smoking. It's about the kinds of investment that people make when they see a long-term and positive future. And we have to get more of that into the community. One of the studies I did, I don't know, it's published about four, six, eight months ago, something like that, was we looked at those communities where the difference in life expectancy is narrower between high-income and low-income people. And it turns out that the only thing we found that actually make, narrows that gap is communities that have high social mobility, where people from the bottom 
socioeconomic status can imagine that they will climb up and into the top. And we have to return America to a land of opportunity where people can imagine that they will actually have uh, real possibilities of increasing their uh, income above what their parents earned. And I think thinking about the policies that we need to put in place for increasing social mobility, uh, especially among minority communities is gonna be really important. Top of my list is early childhood interventions. We know they make a huge difference for educational attainment, staying out of the criminal justice system and long-term economic returns. So that's one kind of program that I think would be very effective. It will take a long time to work through the system and make a big difference, but it's also the program we know has the highest returns for every dollar that the government spends on these kind of programs. The returns are seven to $15, which is a great investment. And we just need to do that. Talk to us about your new podcast. It's called Making the Call. Yeah. Why did you, a very busy guy, decide to get into, uh, into the podcast game? Well, it, it, <laughs> uh, um, opportunity. So I, I will say, you know, in um, uh, late February, early March, I finished my latest book, uh, which will be coming out in June called uh, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? And it was funny, I was talking to my partner, I was talking to my research assistants about, you know, what, what's the next thing we're going to do? And then COVID-19 blew up. <laughs> and um, we realized that a lot of the issues were the, the intersection between health policy and bioethics, which is exactly the place I've made my career. Um, and a lot of people were asking questions about, you know, we're talking about rationing, we're talking about uh, issues related to quarantine, to isolation, um, issues related to disparities, issues related to bringing more mental health, things that I've been working on and, and really thinking about for years. You know, it's like, uh, let's do a podcast. We realize now more than ever just how important good communication is around public health matters. So thank you for the work that you're doing with your podcast. And as we think about wrapping up our conversation, I'm curious, as a physician, as somebody who thinks about the larger public health issues, what's been your biggest surprise about COVID-19 since you started looking at it? Uh, how devastating it is. I don't think um, I, uh, at the start, really appreciated how bad it could be, frankly. Um, I remember um, looking at it and I was like, oh, all right, maybe we'll get, you know, it'll be add on to influenza, but some of the people might have unfortunately died of influenza will die of COVID. Um, we'll get it contained. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, I, I hadn't thought about it as the big pandemic. Um, I began thinking about pandemics in 2005 when uh, the Department of Health and Human Services released its uh, pandemic preparedness report. Uh, Secretary of HHS Mike Levitt uh, commissioned that report, and they talked about how to prioritize people for vaccines and ventilators and other things should an influenza pandemic occur. And I, they got it wrong. I knew they got it wrong. So I wrote my first big paper on pandemics, arguing that their allocation procedure was wrong. To their credit, they then had a group think about it, but also interviewed the public and the public agreed with the proposals we made about you know, prioritizing kids ahead of 
uh, uh, elderly adults with comorbidities if a pandemic comes. And then I, I've spent really the last 15 years thinking about preparation for pandemics and the ethical issues that go into it. And um, uh, I taught a course at Penn. I've taught a course at Penn called Rationing and Resource Allocation, where some of the big issues revolve around preparing for a pandemic and the rationing that would have to occur and how you plan for it. And I used to say, I have this one slide that looks at the influenza pandemics of the 20th century. I said, you know, there's 1918, there's 1957, there's 1968. And I used to have this throwaway line, we're overdue for the next pandemic um, because they seem to occur every 33 years or so, just spacing them out. And, you know, we're, we're supposed to have another one. But I didn't think it was going to happen in my lifetime. And I didn't think it would happen not by an influenza pandemic. That's what I was prepared for, but for from a totally different unexpected area, uh, coronavirus. Um, so I think that's been the most surprising thing to me. And also how this virus, you know, very infective, right? A much higher R naught than, uh, than influenza, much more deadly. Now, maybe it's not 1%, maybe it's 0.6%. It's still higher death rate than, than um, uh, influenza. But then also this sort of very funny, peculiar, inexplicable infection paradigm where it seems like people under 30, certainly under, nine, under 20, are, seem not to have any consequence from it. But older people are very, very uh, um, adversely affected, much, much higher rates, uh, 15 times, 20 times, 30 times the death rate of younger people. So it's like it, it, it's nothing that would have been predicted. And I think very, very, uh, it, it's the thing that has surprised me the most. And, you know, let's face it, the biology of this thing is something we still have, don't understand hardly at all, uh, how the body responds, why the immune system seems to over-respond, which parts of the immune system over-respond. Um, it's, it's very, very strange. Would you share the one piece of wisdom that you would like our listeners to walk away with after they finish listening to this podcast? So I remember that um, Peter Orzag, when he was head of Office of Management and Budget, and I was working for uh, him, um, used to heavily emphasize to our staff meetings, you know, we've got to think about uh, situations that have a very low probability, but a huge magnitude of impact if they happen. And we should think about them and try to see what we can do to plan for them. What COVID certainly has said to me is, these low probability but high impact events are ones we need to pay attention to a lot more and plan for it a lot more. It's hard to plan, it's hard to justify paying, although all of us buy insurance for the low probability of fire in our house, uh, which has a huge impact, right? So we already do it in our personal lives, but I think as a collectivity, as a country, we need to, as a world, we need to do a lot more worrying and thinking about these low probability, high impact events. I think on that note, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, thank you so much. And thank you for the truly important work that you and your colleagues are doing uh, to try to help navigate our country, if not the world, through this uh, global pandemic. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. Thank, thank you. Really appreciate it. Take care. Zeke Emanuel is the former Obama White House health policy advisor. He's the co-host of the podcast, Making the Call. Perry Peltz co-directed and produced the 2019 HBO documentary, Alternate Endings, Six Ways to Die in America. 
Their conversation was held April 20th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by the Aspen Ideas Now team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.